Welcome to BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT. This is our Gemmable Mechanisms podcast. Uh, today we're speaking to uh, Professor Jane Hilston, uh, who we're very much looking forward to speaking to because she's won one of our awards. In fact, it's the series of three now, which we'll come on to in a minute. So first of all, just wanted to say hello to Jane. Hello, Brian. Thank you for having me. Oh, lovely to, lovely to have you on here. So um, one of the reasons we're speaking to you is that you've uh, won the, the Lovelace Award, but this is now a hat-trick of uh, BCS accolades, isn't it? Because previously you had the Needham Award and the Distinguished Dissertation. So how are you feeling about that? Oh, I feel immensely honoured and proud to have um, gone through this sequence of awards at different stages of my career. And they've meant a great deal to me as I've progressed through my career from the Distinguished Dissertation when I finished my PhD and was very uncertain about my future as a researcher through the Needham, which was 10 years after PhD, and gave me again a great boost um, when I was just making my steps to independence and, and really establishing myself. And it, it uh, gave me the confidence to really diversify the applications of my research. And now this one, which feels a bit like, a, I don't know, a sign that I'm perhaps I don't want to say over the hill, but um, <laughs> perhaps towards the the latter half of my career, let's say, um, but still a huge honour, and I'm very grateful to the BCS for the recognition. Yeah, that's not well. Let's just say you're highly decorated. We won't make comments about age or or anything like that. Highly decorated. <laughs> that's the answer, isn't it? So, um, we, we want to talk to you a little bit about uh, about your work. You explained to me when we were first talking, uh, almost as as viewing what you do as like designing small programs your, your citation talks about combining elements of formal languages with mathem with mathematical modeling so could you just link those two ideas together for us yes so formal languages obviously are the basis for programming languages but often in computer science we also use them for understanding whether things are going to behave correctly uh, so most people i think will be familiar with the idea of a state machine where you look at the possible states that a process may go through and some being um, perhaps ones that you would rather avoid and you want to do an analysis mm. to ensure that you don't get into those bad states. The work that I do, beyond looking at just correctness from that point of view, we try to think about the resources that a system is going to use. So in performance modelling where I started, the resources are going to be the CPU, the disk, um, perhaps channel bandwidth. And so those things, it's really important to know how much you're going to use and when you're going to use it. And so we get into a more mathematical or a deeper, richer mathematical representation than something like the state machine. Uh, so people can uh, do small examples directly in the mathematics. But what we found was that to model modern large distributed systems is very difficult for people to work directly with the mathematics. So bringing these ideas from formal methods that were used for functional correctness, we developed small programming languages that then compile down into the mathematics and really help people express systems more in the abstractions that they're used to in terms of states and transitions but then generate a mathematical model underneath that can be analysed. That's interesting. So 
I'm thinking about um, the way we might apply things in the modern world, because, you know, use of resources is quite important, isn't it? You mentioned CPU, uh, disk resources, uh, channel and so on. I presume that would include things like power usage and things like that. Would yes. That, um, your your work presumably would have an effect on, on the way we use um, the resources that we consider traditional resources in, in, green, in green discussions, net zero discussions. Would that be right? Yes, it could be. I haven't personally applied that myself. Um, as I explained before we were talking, I've hmm. actually been head of school in the School of Informatics at the University of Edinburgh for the last five years, which means that my research has um, been going a little bit slower and I've been sticking to things I knew how to do. But as I finish that and go into sabbatical, looking at the impact for sustainability is one of the things that I'm doing. And these techniques certainly have um, a part to play in that bigger picture. Mm, that's interesting. So tell us a little bit more about um, the, the way some of those thought processes might work. You, you used an example when we were chatting before about bike sharing systems. So um, because you've had some applications in biological, ecological and social systems. Yes. So perhaps you could just use your analogy there and tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So in terms of biological systems, it started um, with an area that was called systems biology, which developed uh, about nearly 20 years ago now when people started to regard um, cell biology, not in terms of the individual elements, just looking at genes and proteins, but as the processes mm. um, by which cells evolve and, and uh, for example, disease states might come about or whatever. Uh, and again, it's a system based on states and interactions. And so people started adopting the kind of modeling languages that we had been developing for quantified formal methods within computer science. Uh, so my work there, we modified the language to make it more suitable for biochemistry and studied a variety of different biological processes. And one, for example, was circadian clocks, trying to understand the mechanisms by which plants can um, adjust their behavior according to the daylight. Mm. So they have a definite diurnal sequence, uh, but that's very controlled by daylight. And then people do experiments looking at if you give um, the plants perhaps slightly shorter days or longer days, or you give them a pulse of light in the middle of the night, what does that do? And then we could build models that explained that in terms of the interactions, the biochemical interactions within the cell. We've also looked um, at a bigger sort of biological granularity of like of looking at whole organisms. So mm. instead of looking within um, individual cells, the entities that we're looking at are organisms, um, looking at things like E. coli and how they move. So these are small bacteria that respond to their environment and make decisions to either what's called run or tumble. So when they run, they follow a straight line, usually towards food. And when they tumble, they turn around on the spot trying to choose a new direction. So trying to understand how those systems work. Again, we've used um, very similar techniques. Hmm. The bike sharing came about because uh, I was involved in a large EU project where we were looking generally at um, sort of smart cities. So elements where you have data available, which might change the behavior. And one of the key things for those is modern transport systems. 
where, for example, we've all got familiar now with um, data sharing at bus stops where we can see what buses are going to come and not, and that might alter which route we take home. And so we get this nice feedback loop in smart cities that are intended to make better use of resources. Mm. Bike sharing systems um, have a whole set of issues around them, and they're the resources we're looking at are clearly the bikes but also the bike slots, where we might park the bike, because a lot of research shows that people's satisfaction with the system and their likelihood to use it again depends not only on finding a bike when they want one, but also being able to park it readily at the end of their journey. And in some cities, there's a real problem that bike stations become full. So in Paris, for example, there are... um, there's a very strong preference for not cycling up hills. So the stations at the bottom of the hills tend to become fuller much quicker than the ones near the top. I have total sympathy with that approach. (laughs) Yes. Well, so then we did some modelling that uh, investigated both the use of uh, redistribution, so putting in vans to move bikes, which is still a, a tactic that's used by many Uh, systems but Paris also introduced an incentive where they gave people a discount on their hiring charge if they would take their bike just a little bit further to a a station that was emptier so that the humans were doing the rebalancing instead of the the vehicles driving bikes around on the back. Mm, That's really interesting so uh, there's a very social aspect uh, to that did your um did your work start because you saw those kinds of problems and were trying to look for solutions or, or were you looking at the at the at just the functions of of, of um, these stochastic processes as we'll just as we'll talk about in a minute? Yes, well, I'm afraid I'm a bit of a geek, I think, because I started from the mathematics. So originally I did a, a maths degree, um, both an undergraduate and a master's degree and worked briefly in um, industry for a software house and then started a PhD. And I was hired, um, I was actually working as a research assistant and doing my PhD part time. And I was hired to build these mathematical models that studied the use of resources in computer systems. Mm. But I um, was in Edinburgh and so was Robin Milner at the time. And he was developing these um, formal languages to model the correctness of behavior of systems. And I went along to some of these seminars and really enjoyed that and looked at a way to bring these two worlds together. And that was what I did in my PhD thesis. So I came at it very much from uh, both a mathematical side and a developing love of these formal languages. And then the applications came later. So I guess to some extent, perhaps uh, the BCS played a role in that, because as I say, my thesis was very much about um, marrying these mathematical models with the formal uh, languages, the formal methods, and what you could potentially do with that. And then I think through some of that exposure, I got the opportunity to work in different application domains, such as the biology and such, and that has uh, really helped my career blossom. Uh, interesting. Uh, and that cross-disciplinary stuff, have you, have you found that's where the really interesting st- stuff is happening then? I really enjoy that. I think um, one of the reasons that I left industry and came back to university and did a PhD and, and worked as a researcher was I realised that I love learning. Mm. Uh, I'm not 
content unless I'm really learning something new all the time. So finding that I could take my techniques and apply them in different application domains means that I've learned um, about biochemistry, about ecology. Uh, we've done work on modeling um, fire spread. And so you learn a little bit about that. And currently we're working, you were talking about social aspects. We're involved in a project that's looking, it's called the Advanced Care Research Center. And we're looking at ways to make um, people's later life more comfortable and allowing people to perhaps stay in their homes for longer, to live independently Mm. through the use of technology, but also through smart techniques to analyze the data that comes from that technology. So we're working with colleagues from engineering who are developing sensors, um, some just that sort of ambient sensors in the the houses to, to check people's movements, what they're up to and things, but also wearable sensors that can check things like their hydration. The part of the project that I'm really involved in is these ambient sensors and looking at people's pattern of um, what are called activities of daily life. You know, how long do they typically sit without going to make a cup of tea? How long does it take them to make a cup of tea? Do they boil the kettle first or do they get all the things assembled before they boil the kettle? By having sensors on cupboard doors and on appliances, you can get a real picture of what somebody's normal is. Right. And then the idea of the project is that through the kind of models that um, my colleagues and I are developing and logical descriptions of these, we would be able to detect when there is some deterioration which might mean it's worth somebody just checking that that person's still all right. This that, isn't straightforward because of the plasticity. Right. Because normal is not definitive. Yes. You know, it's not going to be that you always spend two hours before you go make the next cup of tea. It may be that you spend an average of two hours, but your absolutely normal might vary between one hour and four. Um, but you can start to build a picture and then you can start to see when that's drifting. And I say this is not intended to be emergency response. We have other colleagues within the project looking at cameras that can detect if people fall or wearables that will detect if somebody falls. We're just looking at perhaps slow deterioration. That might mean some aids around the house could uh, really help them uh, still continue to live independently. So it's a lot more focused actually in, in, in its application. Yes. Yeah. No, this is very much a, I, I found while I was head of school, um, applications were better than theoretical work because it was, uh, it's very hard to do theoretical work when you have, you know, a zillion other demands on your time. Yeah, of course. Um, the um, material I was reading about your work mentioned this little phrase, stochastic process algebras. Which I yes. guess it comes into this. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what that would mean? Yes. Yeah, so, Process algebras are these formal modeling techniques that I mentioned Robin Milner. Mm. So Robin Milner um, was one of the originators of process algebras, which are ways of describing what's happening um, in terms of agents or components who undertake a number of, of actions. So we think of the agents as being processes and they will um, make various actions. It's very much like a state machine type of view of the world, except rather than viewing it as one monolith, you can have a lot of these concurrent agents working at once. So 
what my um, kind of invention was, what I did in my PhD, was to augment these models that describe processes and actions with saying, well, each of those actions will have some probability of happening Mm -hmm. and some duration. And that's where the stochastic element comes in. So whereas the original processes um, said, this is what happens next, and it will happen next, but I can't tell you when, with the languages that I designed, you can say, this is what will happen next. And I can give you some idea of when it's going to happen. It's not fixed, it's stochastic, it's going to have a duration. And there will be other things with their own durations that then are racing with it. And so you you have a way of mapping what's most likely to happen next, but it's not definitive. Interesting. So in, in, the, in your example of somebody being uh, monitored for, you know, because they're, they're a bit um older and you're perhaps looking at their habits uh, the, the the person's maybe the person's state of mind or, or or how they're feeling on the day might be might be the random element in in that yes and generally people are just random right we're, we're, we're not clocked like computer systems no. we don't do things in fixed times so even if you are very regular in your habits you won't be exactly the same um time that you take or the order in which you do things yeah and so as soon as you have humans and this applies back to the the computer systems even the performance modeling once you have users um the systems become stochastic because the users themselves uh, bring in that randomness yeah now I'm, I'm sorry we didn't discuss this when we were just talking about what we were going to discuss, James. Let's just throw this one in and do with it as you will. But a conversation you mentioned had a conversation that if you had all the factors at, at your disposal, you could have a deterministic outcome to to something. Uh, but we d- often don't have that, and that's where the stochastic approach comes in. That made me think of quantum computing, which is also b- b- based on on the probabilities of events happening, isn't it? I just wonder if there was any crossover there or. Um, yes. <laughs> so I I um I have a colleague, uh, Professor Ellen Kashefi, and she and I have had many conversations where she's tried to encourage me to start thinking about performance of quantum, but then you start to get double stochasticity in a sense because um the quantum processes itself is all based on the probabilities. Um, It's slightly different in a sense, because when I treat probability, I take what's called a branching time view in that I assume just one of the possibilities happens. And then the next time I look, again, might have a choice of different possibilities, but one of them will happen and then we move on. Uh, Whereas quantum is a bit more of an all time view. So everything so all those possibilities are advancing until you measure something and then you kind of pick it and it's so it's a slightly different mindset um it certainly would be an interesting um challenge to to try and marry the two and i think as quantum approaches more applicability so we recently launched the quantum software lab at university of edinburgh so you know, we are moving towards real quantum programs now. Um, again, that's perhaps a possibility for the future. Interesting. Thank you. Well, I, you know, if if you do decide to pursue that, uh, let us know. It'll be, we'll be interested. But you were talking actually at the moment that you're you're, you're looking at, again um, now that you're not head of school anymore at um, at resource activity again, and that that might have applications 
in the real world, particularly in our net zero sort of aspirations? Yeah, so I'm particularly interested in AI models at the moment. And uh, I think there's been a great deal of hype and excitement around large language models and, and other forms of generative AI. But we all know that these are extremely costly to train. So costly, particularly in terms of computing resource and um, therefore energy, but also in terms of data. And um, we also know that if you train a data a AI model on generated data, so if you kind of I guess make it eat its own dog food as such, if you you retrain it on that data very quickly, they degenerate and the output becomes um, quite poor. So we should be tracking what data we're using and where it's been used and being quite careful. So we need more husbandry with respect to data, as well as being careful about our resources for cost and uh, sustainability issues or computing resources. So that's a, a problem that I've started thinking about. Lots of people in the AI community are aware of the issue of computing resource and are looking to try and improve the algorithms. But as yet, there are no benchmarks or, or standard ways of comparing their different improvements and different models. Um, so that's uh, one of the the threads that I've started to pick up. I've just been on sabbatical. It's my second month. So um, I've not got far yet. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Though. Thank you. Thank you for sharing with us uh, that information. That's, that's very interesting. It's been fascinating to talk to you today as well. I think we've got a sense of, of the work you've done. Uh, it's for me to say, again, it's a privilege for me to say congratulations to you on your award. I'm going to ask you one last question, and, and that is your personal inspirations people that uh, you, you leaned on maybe mentors or that you, you you've uh, you've admired yourself well I've been hugely um lucky to have some very strong um mentors through my career and uh, they happen to all be women I don't think that's necessary at all but it's they've really supported me and I've always made an effort to support other women um I think being in a minority is something that you can't appreciate unless you are a minority. But real strong role models for me and champions have been Wendy Hall, for example. So I met Wendy actually when I won the Needham Award, I think, for the first time and uh, really enjoyed working with her on a BCS committee for quite some time and uh, periodically meet up with her still. And there've been occasions when I've rung her and asked for advice and she's really been very helpful. Closer to my own research area, um, there's Marta Kiyakoska at University of Oxford, Muffy Calder at Glasgow and Ursula Martin, um, who's now retired, but was previously at Edinburgh and before that at Queen Mary. And uh, they've all been inspirational to me and a great support through my career. And so I try and uh, give back myself and uh, mentor anyone who asks. At, well, not quite anyone because I don't want to be inundated. Um, but I, I try and be supportive and find suitable mentors for anyone. But I particularly enjoy mentoring women. Yeah, I noticed you've done some specific EDI stuff um, as well in the academic space. That's right, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so I've been involved in quite a few initiatives, um, not just for women, actually. So, for example, at the University of Edinburgh, I worked on decolonising the curriculum, which 
in a way you think, well, computer science, we're post-colonial, there's nothing to do there. But mm. when you start looking at it, we're still very white European or white North um, Northern Hemisphere uh, centric. And there are things that you can do to try and make um, things more inclusive. So we looked at this very much from the point of view of our curriculum and uh, how we deliver teaching too, to try and make it reflective of our student body, which is highly international at Edinburgh. And uh, it really was interesting to get over that first reaction of, oh, well, there's nothing to do here and find that there is. I find that all this um, EDI work is really about thinking of people as individuals, not representatives of groups and trying to uh, support them the best you can to reach their full potential. And I think often the difficulties come when people tend to um, just categorise people and make assumptions. And that's not right. Well, that's been really interesting. Come, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us this afternoon. Every time I see time-lapse photography of a, of a flower opening and closing, looking at the sunlight and moving around, I'll think about our conversation now. Okay. And, um, hopefully we'll see a few less abandoned bicycles in cities as well. Great. Well, thank you very much, Brian. Thank you very much indeed.